So in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, um, basically what Jesus is going to be teaching us on is doing right for the wrong reason. And you'll see what I mean, I trust, as we make our way through the passage. But in this passage, the Lord takes for granted that his followers will be committed to doing what is right or living righteously. Um, The passage begins, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So he, he assumes that his followers will indeed be practicing righteousness. What he addresses in the passage is their motive for doing so. But it's worth being reminded at the outset that that is our calling as believers. We are called to live righteous lives. We're called to live to righteousness. In fact, an example passage from the first from the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, um, Peter says there that uh, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that is a purpose for which Jesus died. Yes, to take away our sins, to remove our guilt, but also so that we would live to righteousness. So that is this uh, underlying assumption in the passage. So let's go on and listen to Jesus. The first thing that we hear from him is his warning in verse 1. Jesus' warning. Once again, beware. So that's that's a warning. When somebody says, beware, they're putting you on notice that uh, there's something to be warned of. And the specific warning is, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's what the temptation was in Jesus' day, and that temptation remains. That temptation is there for us today. We are tempted to make other people think well of us. We're, we're tempted to do good things in front of other people in order for them to think that we are good, that we are righteous. And Jesus says, that's not just an annoyance. It's not just something that should be pushed to the back seat, but it's something to beware of. It's not a good thing at all. And um, this comes up quite a bit in Matthew's gospel. In verse 16, for example, he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that in order that their fasting may be seen by others. Hypocrites fast not that their prayers would be intensified 
before God, but so that they would be seen that way by others. And of course, the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day specialized in this. So in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5, Back in verse 2, Jesus calls out the Pharisees and how they loved to sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they, they loved to be the spokesmen before the Jewish people. And in verse 5, Jesus says about them, they do all their deeds, all of them, to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplace. They love to be called rabbi, etc., etc. The, the Pharisees specialized in doing their deeds to be seen by others. Jesus says, beware of that. Well, what's wrong with that? What's the consequence of doing righteousness before other people? Jesus goes on to explain. So the second half of verse one, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. That's the, that's the warning. Believers are supposed to look forward to being rewarded by God, commended by God. Um, one of the motivations for living in a sin-cursed world with injustice everywhere and people not appreciating righteousness people treating you unfairly. One motivation for enduring through that kind of world is we're supposed to entrust ourselves to God who judges righteously. We're supposed to look forward to the day of judgment when God will, will set everything right. And he'll reward his people for in faith living righteous lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But if we do our good deeds, if we practice righteousness in order to be seen by people, then no reward from God. That's it. In fact, in verse 2, he's going to go on to say that the... Um, the praise and approval of men. So if you do good in order to be seen by people, then the degree to which people actually do see you and they actually do think that you're good and righteous, that is your reward and there's nothing else. That's Jesus' warning. Jesus goes on to give instruction on one particular area of righteousness. Remember, he's talking about righteousness generally in verse 1. 
But now he's going to broaden the subject. Uh, well, excuse me, he's going to get more specific with the subject to talk about one particular area of righteousness, and that's the area of uh, giving alms, giving to the needy. So the next point then is how to give to the needy properly. So in verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Now, I don't believe that Jesus means that there were literally people who sounded trumpets. This is an example of uh, the use of hyperbole in the New Testament. Now, remember, the Bible is God's word, but it's given through human authors, the instrumentality of human authors. So because it's God's word given through men, uh, it employs all of the richness, all of the fullness of human language, human literature, including figures of speech like metaphors and similes and hyperboles like this. And a hyperbole is a figure of speech in which there's an intentional exaggeration to, to make a point. So it's not that we're to imagine that there were literally people sounding trumpets when they would give. That's a conscious, intentional exaggeration. But the, uh, the hyperbole was meant to make a point, and the point was, don't make a scene to draw attention to yourself when it comes to giving. And that was happening. Uh, hypocrites, he calls them, were doing that. They were making some kind of scene, making some kind of noise, raising some, some kind of commotion when they would go before the, the offering box in the temple because they wanted to make sure that people noticed that they were giving. And you'll notice that he says, Jesus does, in the second half of verse two, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So that's it. People notice, oh wow, brother Saul or Joseph, isn't he generous? Isn't he righteous? Because he's, he's giving to the treasury of the temple. Jesus says, that right there is the extent of their reward. They will receive nothing else. In contrast to that, Jesus instructs us as his followers, verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not left, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Sometimes my left hand doesn't know what my right hand is doing, but it's not because of humility. It's because it's this the way it is. 
But this is another example of hyperbole because our left hand and our right hands, they don't have their own brains. They don't, have, they don't act independently. They do what our minds command them to do. And the point of the hyperbole here is to, um, to go to great lengths to make sure that we're doing our good deeds in secret, and in particular, giving. If we don't, if our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing, then surely we won't be letting our neighbor know what we're doing. We won't be letting onlookers in church know what we're doing. And he drives that home at the beginning of verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret. Those uh, who don't give in secret, not because it's by accident, but they, they actually like to give publicly so that people can see them. Jesus calls them hypocrites. That's not a good thing to be called by Jesus, in case you're wondering. The, the Pharisees were, were hypocrites. And a hypocrite means somebody who's putting on an act. They're pretending to be something that they're not. And that's a terrible thing to be, spiritually. And the, the God of the Bible sees our hearts. He knows exactly what is going on. He knows our circumstances. He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And there's no reason to put on an act. We can't impress God with our act. We might as well just be honest with each other and transparent with each other because God sees right through us. We're not fooling God for a moment. And if, if we live before the face of God in that light, realizing that he sees everything, we're not fooling God, then we'll be able to live before one another that way too. Because God sees right through me and he sees right through you. So what do we have to impress one another with? And we're all saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And it's true about all of us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And so what do we have to prove to each other? The gospel liberates us to be able to live before one another authentically without putting on an act, without putting on a religious show. And it's, it's really gross when people in the name of God put on such an act. So give in secret Jesus says, don't draw attention to yourself from other people. What's in this for you? Well, notice the second half of verse four. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
our reward is not supposed to be the momentary, short-term reward of people thinking well of us. Our reward is our Father seeing in secret. Our Father, for example, who knows how much is in our bank account, who knows what we spend our money on, who knows where our treasure is, who knows what our disposition is towards others, especially needy people. And our reward is giving before the face of God and relying on God to reward us and even looking forward to God rewarding us and being just oblivious to what other people think. That's our reward. And that principle applies across the board, doesn't it? Not just to the area of giving, but to all of our Christian lives. If we keep our eyes focused on the Lord and his all-seeing eye, and we're oblivious to what other people think, it's just a wonderful way to live. So that's what's in it for us. Well, I have some takeaways for you. Um, so your outline in your bulletin's a little bit different. I'll need some help, Mr. Wizard. Um, so uh, what Jesus did is actually one of the takeaways. But there are some takeaways as we consider these, these verses and the first one is that God expects his people to be generous. Just like in verse 1, God expects his people to practice righteousness. So in the rest of the passage, obviously, God expects his people to be generous. Jesus deals with the motivation for being generous, but he does expect his people to be generous. And here's some representative passages Proverbs 19 and verse 17, whoever is gen generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. That's God's reward. 2 Corinthians 9 verses 6 and 7, the point is this, Paul writes, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is honored in our giving, but he's honored in our attitude. He loves a cheerful giver. 1 Timothy 6 verses 17 and 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And remember that 
paragraph there is directed to the rich in this present age, and you may be tempted to think, well, I'm glad that doesn't apply to me, but you do need to understand that in terms of world history, we are in the top fraction of a percentile of wealth. We are a wealthy nation. And as a congregation, uh, by and large, most of us are doing quite well. So I believe that uh, Paul would say, well, this paragraph very much applies to Cornerstone Bible Church in Ridgecrest, California. We're called to be generous. And Christians have a reputation for being generous. According to a 2021 study by the American Bible Society, and now I'm going to quote from that study, those who read the Bible on their own, or as the report terms them, Bible users, are 55% more likely, 55% more likely to donate to charity than those who do not. In fact, 80% of people considered to be Bible users give to charity compared to 52% of those who are not Bible users. So Christians are generous. And you know what? This church is generous. I'll, I'll say again, um, in my 19 years up here, uh, I've been amazed time and time again what this little church has been able to do in terms of sending out missionaries, supporting missionaries, helping needy people in our congregation and in our community, uh, and then getting this building. It's amazing to me uh, what the Lord has provided through the generosity of his people. So God expects his people to be generous, and brothers and sisters, you guys are generous. The second takeaway is that God rewards his people for their faithfulness. This idea of reward is going to come up a number of times as uh, we uh, conclude the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a subject that comes up quite a bit in the Bible. And so, since it's come up at this time, in our study in the Sermon on the Mount, it's worth asking ourselves, well, what exactly are God's rewards? What are we supposed to look forward to in terms of God rewarding us? And in the context, rewarding our practice of righteousness, rewarding our um, humble, anonymous generosity. Well, I have, I have four quick thoughts for you on what exactly are God's right, uh, rewards. Number one, heavenly treasure. So we saw earlier in chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we're commanded to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And what, what is that currency? I promise you it is not the American dollar. It is not Bitcoin or any other kind of uh, electronic currency, but the, the currency that makes up this treasure in heaven is what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 6. It's, it's humble, faithful righteousness. It's humble, faithful generosity. It's sincere prayer and fasting before God. When we do that, when we're faithful to God, we're laying up treasure in heaven. And so taken together, this treasure in heaven that we're laying up for our future, it, it somehow translates to our ability to enjoy heaven even more. D don't get me wrong. Heaven is heaven. And the future heaven, which is the new earth, when heaven comes down to earth. It's, it's paradise. There's no suffering. There's no sorrow. There's no shame. There's no death. There's no sin. But the Bible does tell us that there will be different degrees of enjoyment of the privileges of heaven and the new earth that are proportional or related in some way to our faithfulness in this life to the Lord. So heavenly treasure will somehow help us to enjoy heaven even more. And then, and then secondly, what are our rewards? Commendation from God. Remember the parable of the, the talents? which I won't go through, we'll, we will get to it. But in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 uh, through 30, Jesus gives the parable of the talents. And uh, this first servant gets five talents, and he makes five talents more. And there's another servant who gets two talents from his master, and then he gets, he earns two talents more, and there's a servant who gets one talent, and he buries it. And uh, to the first two servants, the one who had the five talents and the one who had the two, the master says the same thing, like in verse 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. So that sentence says a lot. I guess it's two sentences. Those two sentences say a lot. There's commendation from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. And Jesus's point is for the believer, that is to be a very powerful motivation. Just to hear God's commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. 
But then there's also greater responsibility and glory. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And that opens up a huge subject that I recommend that you look into. I've recommended to a lot of you to read through Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. And among a whole bunch of things, uh, Randy Alcorn clarifies that heaven is not going to be us floating around in the clouds and strumming trumpets and being in in an eternal church service. Although we will love the Lord and worship him eternally. But eventually, we're going to be on the new earth in glorified bodies with other believers in glorified bodies, and we'll be with the Lord, and creation itself will be rejuvenated and glorified, and there will be things for us to do, not the drudgery of work in a sin-cursed world, but the glory and joy and fulfillment of, of labor in a rejuvenated, glorified world. And there will be people, there will be saints who will be set over much that is based on their faithfulness in this life. That will be their reward, greater responsibility in glory. And then also the joy of communion with the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And then these words, enter into the joy of your master. Notice Jesus doesn't say, enter into what you have coming. Enter into the joy of your labors. No, he says, enter into the joy of your master. And why is that? It's because as believers, the reason that we give, the reason that we practice righteousness, the reason that we pray and fast, the reason that we do anything is ultimately for God. And so... Who cares about what we have coming? If it's been all about God in this life, then it's all about God in the next life. And all we want is the glory of God, at least ideally. And so all we should want when we enter into the next life is to enter into the joy of your master. And then the following verses in Matthew 25, verses 31 and following, is basically a warning that the complete absence of faithfulness to the Lord in this life is a warning sign of the absence of saving faith. So, God rewards his people for their faithfulness. And then finally, the third takeaway is Jesus makes us rich. 
No, I've not been watching too much Creflo Dollar. <laughs> but Jesus does make us rich. Here we've been studying the words of Jesus about generosity. Jesus is very generous. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and he was, because he was in the beginning with God, and he was God. It was through Jesus that all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that was made. All things were made through him and for him, and in him all things hold together and consist. And then even before that, Jesus existed eternally in perfect communion with his Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed and always enjoyed perfect fellowship and love and contentment within the Godhead. Jesus Christ was rich. He enjoyed the glories of heaven. But then Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And you know the story. He was born in a manger, a feeding trough in Bethlehem to poor parents. And he lived as a poor child of poor parents, a working man, a blue-collar man, so blue-collar he didn't even have a collar, frankly. And then he told his disciples that men have places to lay their heads the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Even foxes have holes. Jesus was homeless during his earthly ministry. He became poor. He became like us. And why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus show this incredible, cosmic, divine generosity why did the eternal God of gods become man and dwell among us in poverty? Paul goes on, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Amen. And we are rich as believers. The righteousness of God through Jesus Christ has been imputed to us. We have been adopted as children of God. We are heirs together with Christ, which I cannot comprehend. And we have been given an inheritance in heaven that is incorruptible and imperishable and will not fade away. We are rich. And that's my main complaint about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's peddled by false teachers like Creflo Dollar. Because 
they're talking too low. Because the kind of riches, the kind of treasure that they promise, millions of dollars and a great job and a new car and a perfect life. Jesus said, it's all going to fade away. Moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Whatever we enjoy in this life is only temporary. Will not last. But Jesus makes us rich eternally. No one can take it away. Inflation doesn't affect our treasure in heaven. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, come to him. He says it like it is. He tells you as it is, you're poor. But we're all like that. In and of, in and of ourselves, we are poor. We're bankrupt, penniless, beggars before God. We don't have anything to impress God with. Even the relatively good things that we do are tainted by sin because we don't do them exclusively for the glory of God. God sees you that way in your sin. So one way to think about the gospel is you're poor and Jesus call, calls you to become rich in him, in heaven, in spiritual terms. Renounce, renounce what you think is your worldly wealth. Renounce your supposed good deeds and righteousness and lay it all down at the feet of the cross and come to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing him as your Lord and Savior, believing in your heart that he is who he said he is and that he's done what the Bible says that he has done. The promise of the Bible is you will be saved and you will be made rich. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your righteousness and your generosity towards us. Would you help us to have generous hearts, to not be greedy, to not be selfish, to not be earthbound in our valuation of treasure. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in how we respond to this teaching from our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this passage of Scripture to even save sinners in our midst today. We pray in Jesus' worthy name, amen.